Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books in East European Studies podcast series. I am your host, Amanda Jean Swain, at the University of California, Irvine. Today, we'll be talking with Jessica Greenberg about her book, After the Revolution, Youth, Democracy, and the Politics of Disappointment, published by Stanford University Press. So welcome to New Books in East European Studies, Jessica. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to this. As a more detailed introduction, I wonder if you would tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in the region of the former Yugoslavia and specifically um, interested in youth activism and democratic transition. Sure, I'd be happy to. So my interest in the region, my interest really in in questions of socialism and post-socialism goes back quite a ways. I'm sort of what you would call if, you know, Alexa Yurchuk has referred to the last Soviet generation. I'm sort of the the correlate last Cold War generation in the U.S. And so, you know, I remember very distinctly, and I think it had a big impact on me, 1989 and the events leading up to 1989. But I also have enough of a of a recollection or sort of sensibility of that cold world cold war world that that structured our everyday life in a lot of ways leading up to 1989 and so by the time i got to college in the early 1990s i had really become fascinated with questions of socialism what was it uh what did this whole world what what did 1989 mean in a in a more global sense i don't know that i had the vocabulary for it at at 18 or 19, but there was a sense that something had happened that had profoundly shifted the grounds or the terrain of politics in the world we lived in, and I was really interested in that. And so my first interaction with the region was in 1996 uh, in my junior year abroad. I spent a summer in a volunteer group in Pakrac, Croatia, uh, in Croatia and Western Slavonia. And it was essentially a uh, peace and reconciliation NGO that did a lot of work on the ground in an area that had a, a, cease line, uh, fire, a ceasefire line running right through the community. And so that was my first exposure to the wars of Yugoslav succession. Again, I was, I was in college at the time, and I had come to the region as part of a, a longer trip in a study abroad program where I had been, been thinking about questions of socialism and, and gender and post-socialism. And so that was my first interaction, and it was a very profound wake-up call. I mean, for, for a kid from the, from the suburbs, you know, to suddenly find herself in uh, essentially an immediately post-conflict zone, was it was incredibly destabilizing. And so it really sparked for me a number of interests and concerns politically and also academically about what, what had happened and what was this place that, that I, had, I had spent that time. So when 
I went back to, to college, I became involved in a number of NGO efforts and feminist advocacy efforts. And that's what initially then led to a more professional engagement in the region. I did some NGO work after college, between college and, and graduate school, working with a, a feminist advocacy organization called STAR, the STAR Project, that worked across the former Yugoslavia. And it was from there, I had done some work with the Network of East-West Women, and so it was from there that I generated my scholarly interests in in questions of politics and advocacy and social movements. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting, that um, combination of the NGO work and the scholarly work. And I think that really shows up in your book. So I'm sure we'll hear more about that as we're going along. But to start, can you give us a brief overview of Serbia's democratic revolution in 2000 and what you called the day that the spirit of the revolution died, which was March 12, 2013, sorry, 2003, when Prime Minister Zoran Didic was assassinated. Yeah. So, you know, there was a lot of, of protest and activism on the ground throughout the 1990s. And I detail in some of the chapters of the book some of the preceding kinds of, of opposition and student movement action that, that you saw across the 1990s. Some of those earlier protests were somewhat more were more confined to discrete or smaller groups. Uh, the the largest in the 90s were the 96, 97 protests, which I do talk a fair amount about, which really had tens of thousands of citizens on the street who were protesting basically stolen elections across the countries, and particularly in urban uh, areas. And those were really protests that sparked a somewhat broader social movement. So you had a series of sort of oppositional and youth protests organizing, and that was really sort of the beginning of a, of a, of a real flowering or, or the sort of culmination, I would say, actually, of a flowering of opposition uh, in Serbia in the 1990s. And it was also that turning point that then produced a somewhat more internationalized, you could say, and more broad-based social movement response, and that's, of course, Otpor, and which which many of the listeners will probably know the most about if they know anything about about Serbian political resistance in the in the 90s and 2000. And so it was really that movement that then culminated. There was a there was a something of a pause during the the NATO bombing where organizing went somewhat underground for a variety of reasons I touch on a little bit in the book. And it really springs up again around 2000 with the elections that uh, that Milosevic called and and his defeat by the opposition, opposition parties. And when he initially refuses to step down, it's really that period of time between the, the elections and eventually when he is ousted on October 5th that you see this massive groundswell of popular resistance against him. And again, that was a movement that was much more generalized, right? So it had these older elements from the 1990s. It had the oppositional aspect. It had the student movement piece as well. And people have been organizing for many, many years in a more sort of micro level networked way. This was really a groundswell movement. The question, so that was 2000, October 5th, 2000, which is sort of the the, the moment of, of Serbia's revolution and of course becomes a, a model in interesting ways for subsequent color revolutions as well that happen in, in other parts of other parts of the formerly socialist world. Whether or not that 
was a revolution as such, right, still remains a, a pretty heated debate in contemporary Serbia and, and elsewhere. We can talk about that later if there are questions about defining revolution, because that's obviously a big thrust of the book, is to think about what it is a revolution means and to whom and what it means to define it from certain kinds of perspectives. But I sort of begin with that moment by thinking of it as it's... It, it, a common reference point around which the conversation of revolution emerges. There is a moment, a real sort of, uh, again, flowering of call it a sense of hope, a sense of possibility. I mean, I think that, you know, people look back and, and the, the sheer force and power and generative energy of that moment was was in many ways a surprise, not to people necessarily who've been organizing all along, but I think it was a sort of surprise. You know, people didn't expect that necessarily from from Serbia. And then relatively quickly, as I talk about in the book, there was a beginning of a sense of, or trying to make sense of what does it mean? What did this moment mean? Uh, what did it really translate into? What does change really, really look like? And that period of kind of possibility but questioning really comes to a close with Djindjic's assassination. And in many ways, although he was a controversial figure while alive and wasn't always necessarily popular, if you look at, at the polling, certainly, his death for many signaled a moment where all of that questioning, the possibility, the openness, of the the period subsequent, immediately subsequent to the revolution, begins to kind of shut down, right? And so you have a combination both of a, a very formal marker that people could really point to and say, take stock, right? Well, what did this mean, right? Especially with Ginger Chikan, what did this mean? And you have a kind of figurehead who stood in very symbolically and to some extent in policy terms as well for that shift between the sort of revolution and its, and its aftermath. And then you also have the beginnings of a kind of political shift in the opposition in Serbia, too, which people may or may not be interested in, in, in excruciating detail. But you certainly have, you have a period of a sort of state of emergency. Uh, you have people becoming increasingly aware, although I think people mostly knew, but in a more sort of public way of the continued influence of organized crime and the and the institutional and state apparatus that had so structured Milosevic's authority through through the 1990s. And so there was a sense of of both a loss of possibility and a kind of awakening to the complexities of what a democratic revolution means in practice. Great. So tell us more about youth activism specifically during this time in this this process of revolution. And we and I think it would be useful to talk more, and I'm sure we will, about how to define revolution. Yeah, absolutely. And in particular, the three groups that you worked with and were the um, the student activists organizations that are uh, the the key part of your research. Right, right. So there was, as I indicated earlier, a lot of youth organizing and, and activism. And it, it's a little bit hard to disaggregate different groups because there was also a tremendous amount of overlap. So what you'll tend to see for people who are familiar with the literature on the region 
is a lot of focus and analysis, and, and rightly so, on NGO or non-governmental organization activism. And these groups are really interesting as well to think about. They're not explicitly youth, at least in, in, the, in the 90s and even leading up uh, after 2000, there weren't as many groups as I think there probably are now that have a, a, a real youth component. There was often sort of, for example, youth sections of other kinds of, of groups or just group organizations that happen to have a lot of a lot of young people. But the NGO groups didn't tend to organize as much around particularly youth or student thematics. So there was a sort of very rich world of anti-war activists, feminist activists, uh, general civil society organizations and who were networked and connected both within Serbia but also across the region. So there was a real sort of trans-regional and also transnational focus as well to a lot of the NGO efforts. And again, as I said, they, they attracted a number of young people, but they didn't necessarily organize in terms of a, of a youth thematic. I was interested in those organizations that were really primarily thinking and organizing in terms of a somewhat more self-conscious youth or, or student focus. And I was interested in that for a number of reasons, both because the question of generational difference across political activist uh, groupings was interesting to me and the role of generation and the role of youth and has continued to, to be interesting to me even now as you still see some see these very interesting modes of differentiation, often very micro level modes of differentiation among generations, right? So even between one group to another over the course of a few years, right? Things break out in these interesting kinds of generational ways and cohort ways. But I was interested in these themes of, of youth and generation, and I was also interested in the particular role of the university as a very contradictory kind of institution, as a site in which people, and I talk about this in the book, in which people were really encouraged or had been encouraged to some extent to organize and think critically, and also as a site, a very specific site of repression under Milosevic, and also as a place where people were trying to think through new kinds of citizenship, particularly around new moments of economic transition, right? So people were concerned both with questions of freedom and, and real social questions, they were uh, and, and sort of anti-repression movements, and they were also concerned with things like employment, right? And the sort of weight of the contradictions of those different sets of commitments were really interesting to me. So my, that was one reason that I focused primarily on these these student groups. Another reason was because they were so instrumental in in organizing and universities were such important sites of organizing throughout the 90s and, and 2000 and just after. And so the way I sort of framed my questions, uh, there were two ways. One is, is a question of sort of what do you do? You've been on the streets, right, for years and years. And some of the students I work with have been protesting since they were 15, 16 years old, really, had come of age as a generation around protest. And I was really interested in what it looked like and felt like to move from the streets back into institutions, right? And how one takes a more anti-authoritarian politics, you could say, and works it through institutions that at times can be really authoritarian, right? I mean, for those of us who've taught, we, you know, classroom mm -hmm. is, 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 is always to some extent a little bit uh, authoritarian, well, pedagogical anyway. So mm -hmm. 
within that framework, I was interested in, so one, student organizations and their relationship to the university and to institutionalized modes of, of democratic organizing and practice. And two, differences among organizations regionally, but also in terms of their, their understanding of what democracy meant, what student activism meant, uh, and what their responsibilities were and to whom, right? So the three different organizations that I worked with had very different, they overlapped in some cases, they had different histories. Uh, one was more particularly uh, student union, which I did the, the majority of my of the research with and is really the main focus in a lot of ways of the book, was much more international, had a stronger presence in the European student movement, and that developed over time and, and was really very rich and robust at the time that I was in the field. Uh, Sava's, uh, the, the uh, student association was interesting because of its political positioning during the 1990s, it was understood to be pro-regime and that sort of, you know, shifted around the late 90s and, and two, after 2000. And it also was the, the legacy of the official student organization under, under socialism, right? So, so that had been, that it, it always had a sort of official official uh, relationship to the university. And then the third organization I, I looked at, I spent a lot of time with them. I write about them less in the book Associazione Association in, in Niche. I was interested in because of a sort of their, their regional presence and, and the regional component. But what I was interested in across these three organizations were a number of things, their style of work and even just things like their, their organization of gender relations. But I was really very much interested in how each of these groups was articulating democracy. So what did they think democracy meant? What did it look like? What was evidence of democracy? What did it mean to represent students? Who were they responsible to, right? And how did that sense of ethics or responsibility or representation ma manifest itself in very specific sets of practices? The way organizations were structured, the way leadership was structured, the way in which finances were handled or carried out, the, the extent to which they dealt with rank and file student issues versus policy kinds of advocacy, right? Again, their relationship to international groups, their relationship to other NGOs. And for me, I found the differences among the organization illustrative, both because I was interested in the organizations, but also because they seem to work along very different models or understanding of democratic practice, but to be manifest in really material ways. Right, really practicable and material ways. So that was the rationale behind situating myself both at the university and with student groups as opposed to the NGO world, which I'd had some more professional experience with, and also to try to sort of put myself in different conversations across the three groups. Mm -hmm. And I think your conversations with individuals is a really um, compelling part of the book that you're able to um, get at these experiences through very specific um, individuals. And what struck me was just the frustration with the practicalities of living at this time period in Serbia um, on the part of the, the young people that you're talking to and the students that you're talking to. And you say that they had had enough of utopia, whether it was socialist, nationalist, or revolutionary. 
Um, and that as a result, um, Serbian youth were really present focused rather than future oriented. And, and this seems like a very important temporal shift in the way they're thinking about their activism. So can you talk more about that? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. No, I think that's that's exactly right. It was a sort of a sort of frustration. And again, you know, keep in mind, even just sociologically and ethnographically speaking, these are students who had had been through a lot. They had come of age in the context of of the Milosevic regime and, and ongoing wars, and also hyperinflation, which was you know the worst that that Europe had seen. I mean, massive hyperinflation. I mean, these they were they were they were kids. I don't want to call them kids in a, that's in a patronizing way. They were in many ways they they, they were because they were young adults who had experienced in a short lifetime a tremendous amount of instability and and upheaval. And so I think even on a sort of practical level, there was a, among many a desire for things to just function, right? Things to just, again, be normal. And this is something I've talked about. This is something lots of folks across, who are scholars across the region, activists across the region, have talked about this sort of desire for something that would be predictable or normal. And at the same time, a kind of emerging sense that an older generation wasn't going to guarantee that those conditions for normalcy or predictability. And so and so they had to do it themselves. If, if I were in a different line of work, you know, if I were in a sort of social psychology, psychological uh, vein, I would say, you know, they were a parentified generation. And that's not necessarily the word, the kind of language we'd use in anthropology, but there was a sense of, of competence, the necessity of competence. And actually, it's really interesting, and we can talk about this maybe later, I'm seeing that, and I've been talking talking with with friends in Serbia, and just recently co-authored something with a friend about a, a sort of a competence generation that's come of age, and particularly in relationship to who's doing the service work and advocacy work right now in the for the refugees in, in terms of the refugee mm -hmm. crisis in Serbia. Right, this sense that the, your parents' generation and the state, even though they ought to aren't necessarily going to make things work and we and we have to have to make things work. So this is not to say that it's not a hopeful generation or an idealistic generation or there aren't other ways of being activists that are or that are creative and deeply imaginative and and prefigurative, right? And that kind of politics is also absolutely going on in Serbia and across the region and and others have have documented that really really beautifully. But I was interested in the the practical responses, right? The sense of practicality, or as I call it, pragmatism, right? Or a politics of disappointment as a kind of guiding ethos, right? So we have to do it. We've got to be competent, and we have to take this on because this, if this change is going to happen, then we're going to have to undertake it. And again, I think it makes a big difference that the political and social materials that people were using to structure a sense of everyday competence and functionality for the state in a post-conflict and post-socialist context and you know, post-Milosevic context were institutional materials, right? They were looking at things like policies, procedures, regulations, course evaluations, right? The materials at their disposal 
for world making, right? In many ways, we're, we're very practical, institutional kinds of materials. And I think the paradox for me that was important is that there's a tremendous amount of creativity in the use of practical materials in the pursuit of world making, you know, and that was something I wanted to get at with this sort of notion of anti-utopia. Again, not at all to say that there isn't creative, imaginative going work, work going on both within these these groups and among other kinds of activist circles in Serbia and the region, but but. At, I wanted a sense of that commitment to the pragmatic as again as I've been saying a, a kind of a kind of world making a, a kind of a kind of ethos. Mhm. Mm and it really changed the way in which they thought about um protest and and revolution what what is revolutionary in terms of um their move from that um that kind of almost stereotypical kind of ac activism to the processes that they were engaged in, in very practical terms with their universities and um, their, their communities. And it's interesting to me that you, um, that you use this term, this politics of disappointment, that their disappointment with um, what the um, generations, their parents' generations who they blamed for getting them into this situation and, and the inability of the state to resolve the problems um, and one of the examples of these new approaches is what you call the quality protest. And, um, that was, that was particularly interesting that it doesn't matter whether or not you have a lot of people. It matters whether or not you have the right people and whether you got, you get attention basically from the media or from, um, particular sets of, um, leadership or, or <clears throat> institutions that you're trying to, to, um, impact. So, Talk more about these quality um, protests, and and I'm going to actually ask a question yeah. the way you phrased it in the book, which is who counts as a quality citizen in this um, in this type of protest, and and why would a handful of of these so-called quality protesters um, matter more than just a democratic mass of students in general? Yeah, yeah, no, that it's it's a great question, and it's interesting because I think that chapter and that notion of equality protest and then my discussion of expertise in some ways get the most, I wouldn't say pushback, but the least sympathy. You know, it's interesting because when I wrote this, I, I have, this is true for anybody who spends so much time with a group of people or material, there's a sort of empathetic connection. And, and I thought that I was representing this much more empathetically or sympathetically than I, that I was, and people often come to, but they're so elitist, right? And so, so much of of that chapter in particular is trying to unpack what looks at from one perspective like an elitist position, right? Political position, a vanguard, right? They're sort of proposing the 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 the, the vanguard of of good citizenship, of democratic citizenship, and 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 it is to some extent. I mean, the history of the tension between a vanguard and a mass politics has always run along the lines of you know of of the people versus the elites. This is not particular to this group, nor is it particular necessarily to the socialist and formerly socialist world. Although it's an excellent example of of the implications of those debates playing out in, in real world ways. But, uh, but what I wanted to try to show was some of the, 
the logic and the and the rationale behind that kind of vanguard politics. And so the quality protest chapter was an attempt to try to grapple with the idea. Well, there are a couple of things. One is the mass protests, and I think this is a challenge for social movement folks and for activists, you know, across different social movement contexts. The, the mass protest is a very difficult form to sustain, a very difficult, and in part because it often tends to be reactionary in some ways, right? So the kind of galvanizing power of a stolen election produces a sense of community, right? That's going to be very different, in many ways necessarily different than the violation of a particular set of rights, for example, you know, in the exam schedule at the university. And of course, it takes a tremendous amount of active ongoing coalition work to bring people out to the street, especially the more narrow the one, the interest is, is defined. And so I think one of the things that these student activists were, were dealing with, in part because they bridged exactly that generation of mass protest to much smaller kinds of protest, was the, the social architecture and political architecture of, of protest, right, when that galvanizing moment is passed. And so this is part of the, the revolutionary, post-revolutionary dichotomy that I'm playing around a little bit, a little bit with. Um, the, you know, the revolution being signaled by the mass, the masses of people on the street and, and the post-revolutionary by these much smaller groups. The other thing I was interested in thinking about was how a, a post-socialist and privatizing state, in many ways neoliberalizing state in Serbia after after 2000 and, and continuing today, parsed different interests or grouped citizens according to different kinds of interests, right? So it's a bit more of an identity politics paradigm that you're seeing in the quality protest. And that itself was also interesting to me, right? All of a sudden, instead of citizens, you had different kinds of citizens, right? You had students, you had workers, you had feminists, you had whatever. You had a variety of different kinds of of interest. Now, people don't necessarily have to be at, at odds. Of course, coalitions get built all the time. But I do think there was something about the political economic configuration of privatization and the way that, that rights and entitlements were being distributed and that sort of thing that sliced people up. And you could see it reflected to some extent in the almost zero-sum game politics, where if I get this, you don't get this, right? So it became important for citizens to articulate specific demands rather than these kinds of collective uh, and general demands. Again, a process that I think has a lot of comparative purchase in, in lots of different places. For the students in the in this idea of the quality protest, there was also a sense that if you were going to protest as so students are a specific category, they've always been a specific category, they were a specific kind of category of, of rights bearing citizens under socialism as well, right? They were special. They were the future. They were, there was a tremendous amount of social and ideological investment in the idea of, of the student citizen, right? There's even a, a term for that, the student citizen. And so this idea of who counts and who doesn't count comes in part out of that tradition. It also comes in part out of a distinction that people used a lot 
in Serbia at the time around a kind of first Ser Serbia and second Serbia, right? There was this idea of Milosevic supporters were, were the masses. They were who got us into trouble in the first place, right? And there was often representations of them as, as more uh, working class, uh, pensioners, more rural, more backwards, their cultural and musical and aesthetic forms uh, were often tagged among more elite university educated folks as somehow being backwards. And so there was an association of the masses and certain kinds of class formations and certain kinds of politics. And then, on the other hand, the idea that civil society was a middle class phenomenon. It was an educated phenomenon, but it was also a more progressive, somehow, politically liberal, progressive, and democratic kind of phenomenon. And so, in part, the quality protest, this individual group of differentiated young students, right, that were, they're the future, they were setting themselves up against this, this idea of, of the mass, right? And so, there was that, 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 was, that was what was being performed in that protest a little bit. And again, it has these long, very, very long um, historical forms as well as Serbia, which I, I don't need to go into. But And a lot of this protest, it was um, at this point focused on university reform and the um, universities really become a site of revolutionary activity and, and revolutionary protest. And you mentioned already this idea of um, experts and expertise. Mm -hmm. And that was the topic on which these young people are becoming experts, that though they are the ones who understand and are knowledgeable about and can articulate various approaches to reform, various issues within the university system as, um, as a space of oppression or as a space of not fulfilling um, its obligations to these students as citizens and as students. And a lot of that was centered around um, the work um, to get Serbia uh, to adopt the Bologna process. So can you tell us about this Bologna process, this idea of a, a higher education area within um, Europe, why this was so important to Serbian young people and how they were able to position themselves as the experts to push this through? Sure, no, that's a great question. Yeah, the idea, I mean, Bologna comes out, as you said, again, of this, this idea that uh, if we create a higher education space, it will enhance and allow for student mobility across Bologna countries and across the, the continent. So it's a broader piece of a kind of Euro integration process. And also it's supposed to streamline and rationalize and make more effective both university programs, but also transfers and exchanges among universities, right? The idea that if universities count their curriculum in similar kinds of ways, then it's easier for students to move back and forth and everybody knows sort of what kinds of educational units count, right? And so again, it's it's part of a, of a sense of of an integrated European space, both in terms of employment, but also in terms of just intellectual exchange and, and other kinds of um, other kinds of, of exchange and community. For for many of the students for whom I worked, this idea of being integrated into Europe was absolutely central. They felt that, and in many ways it was true, Serbia had been 
isolated because of the wars, because of sanctions, uh, because of the regime. Serbia had been isolated and they had suffered tremendously for that, both in terms of the, moder the modernization of their education, the kinds of curricula, the kinds of ideas that they had access to. For example, things like interdisciplinarity is extremely, was extremely hard to produce to create interdisciplinary programs at the university because of very, very rigid curricular structures and also relationships among fa faculties, right? So Bologna would allow for a loosening or flexibility of curricular requirements that might allow for things like interdisciplinarity. I mean, to that point, alternative programs happen primarily things like women's studies were, were run by academics, but they had to happen outside of the university at that point in time, at least. So it was a push for a more, what people saw as modern, more robust, more cutting edge and more flexible and more practical educational experience. So that was one. The other was, of course, creating institutional linkages that allowed young people to to do things like travel, to leave the countries. I mean, the visa and border regimes had been so stringent at that point that very few young people really had any kinds of opportunities to, to travel. And especially for university-educated folks, the importance of travel as the basis of a kind of cosmopolitanism, a kind of European identification and belonging was really, really important. So Bologna was a sort of path to that as well. And then in addition, many students saw Bologna as a kind of lever, and, and faculty as well, and some administrators as well, as a lever or mechanism for de, I don't know how to say this, Milosevicizing the university, right? I mean, for taking essentially an institution that had really come under the, the control of, of a highly politicized agenda and making it into a more intellectually critical, robust, and, and academic place. And so people saw these reforms. Again, as I was saying before, the, the ideas were very creative. The, the materials were often very dry and bureaucratic. This is where expertise comes in, right? So in some ways, the becoming experts on things like Bologna process reform allowed students to offer viable solutions to really intractable, intractable problems, right? Solutions that had the backing of Bologna countries, that had the backing of various European organizations, that had the backing of certain, you know, members, for example, in the Ministry of Higher Education. It allowed students to talk the talk and walk the walk in a way that actually got things done. Now, of course, the flip side of it is that you know lots of this material can be very very dry and very legalistic and so they were experts in something that they saw and was in many ways really critical for educational reform didn't play so well right as a kind of mass rallying point which gets us back to this whole quality protest kind of thing and it really comes down to the question of where do you locate social change who's your audience for social change demands and what are your materials, right? And the way you will align those different things has real implications for what kind of movement you are, what kind of vision of democracy and representation you, you, can, you can offer. So as I argue in the book, expertise, many students saw 
expert who were activists that I work with saw expertise as a really critical service that they could provide to other students to help make this institution work in a variety of ways. Many everyday students saw this stuff as highly bureaucratic, highly elitist, highly careerist, ironically very political, right? Because oftentimes it brought student activists to various meetings and high level kinds of meetings and that sort of thing. And other student activists who said, you know, this is not what we're here for. We're here for, again, for more rank and file kinds of kinds of, you know, commitments. Debates that, as I as I indicate, you know, in the book and I've indicated other places, again, I think that have, re have much more comparative purchase, right? If you look at the contemporary U.S. labor movement, for example, or you look at a range of student organizations that are now transitioning to political parties, right? For example, in Spain or that sort of thing. You, these are very weighty issues that these that these folks were working through. And they were very controversial for the students, for the people who are watching them. And one of the things that <clears throat> I found striking about this politics of disappointment, it's not just that the students and the young people themselves were disappointed and therefore were engaging in these activities, but by their very act of moving into these realms of expertise and, and bureaucratic reform and legislation and regulation, that they disappointed others, that, that people who were looking to them to be the revolutionary, to be the revolutionary vanguard um, didn't perceive these actions as revolutionary. And so that these students um, are also the politics of disappointment that they're engaging with or, or um, in this um, realm of people expressing um, disappointment with them. And that, shows up not only, as you said, in the expertise, but also this, um, as they become polit politicians, and I'm, I'm making air yeah. quotes for our listeners in the podcast, yeah. um, because they really tried hard to, uh, in a sense, depoliticize their role as politicians and kind of to portray it as a necessary evil, um, because they they felt this weight of disappointing others, it seemed to me. So absolutely. talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think one of the things that's really important, and, and, you, and you, you spoke to that just now um, right on, you know, revolutionary politics in many ways is a, is a, a pure politics, right? And that's not necessarily true on the ground if you look at the anatomy and structure of what we call revolutions. But but oftentimes it's it's easier to have a kind of ideological purity or a kind of set of, of commitments that seem pure in the heat of 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 the moment, right? Of the of the revolution. And one of the things that was most important to me in this book was to argue that the the end of revolution is not the end of politics and that disappointment after the revolution is not failure right it's just that the terrain of politics and the condition under which you make claims and draw in audiences and develop coalitions and formulate goals changes really significantly and it changes in a way in which that kind of absolutism or that kind of purity, if it ever even existed, right, is certainly no longer possible. And so in some ways that the, the trap of having to enact social change 
and yet not get caught up in the contradictions, right? Not be not not get not be seen as tainted, right? Or no longer pure is that politics of disappointment that I'm trying to get at. And I do think in many ways, and I say this not at all in a critical way, that democracy is really disappointing, right? Because it's it's really hard, right? And that a revolutionary politics doesn't always necessarily prepare. And again, not to, this is not by any means a critique. These are different moments or different iterations or ways of being political. But a revolutionary politics doesn't necessarily prepare people for the, the grinding work right, of a, of a kind of disappointing politics after, after the fact. And so this piece about being political and not political is incredibly important to that story and to what I mean by a politics of, of disappointment, which is that in some ways students were very well aware and others were very well aware that the altruism and the heroism in some ways of a youth politics, right, that kept them seemingly pure, you know, in the moment of, of revolution, the unfolding of a kind of revolutionary politics, it was no longer possible to sustain those and yet people would expect that of students, right? And so there's a lot of negotiation or tacking back and forth in in, in really specific ways. And I, I hope the specificity of it and the, str the strategicness of it comes out in the ethnography of trying to both create a sense of, of, of a pure politics or a democratic politics, right? And yet having to get one's hands messy and get and get your hands kind of kind of dirty. Uh, and I don't know that there's a resolution for that for the students or for anyone. But one of the primary strategies that folks used, as you pointed to, was to try to draw distinctions between being political and being not political. And they did it in various ways. One of the ways that they did it, and again, just as an aside, the allergy to politics is, you know, the idea that to be political is to be immoral is quite widespread in the region for a whole variety of reasons. It's quite widespread in, I would say, the formerly socialist uh, European world. It's frankly quite spread a, widespread a lot of places, right? I mean, we could certainly look to the U.S. and all of the various maneuvers and machinations that people go through to distance themselves from politics, right? The idea that politics is is dirty, you know, is is a really uh, it's a it's a profound rhetorical problem, right? As well as ethical problem for people. So, one of the things that students did, as I argue in the chapter that you're referring to is to try to invoke regulations, statutes, laws, an almost legalistic commitment to procedure, right? Where if you could say arguable, arguably during the Milosevic regime, laws were fairly nakedly mobilized in the service of power, right? Part of the response to that is for laws to be, and that of course has interesting uh, resonance in the in the socialist context, which I talk about as well, in among the students I was talking about, they tried to mobilize a notion of a rule of law, right? Which, which was a sort of architecture where they could take personal interests and careers and pol everything dirty about politics and hold it to one side and say, you know what, this is just about procedure. This isn't about my, you know, my personal interests. This isn't about money. This isn't about, this is anti-corruption and transparent and it's rule of law, right? So the idea of a rule, rule of law uh, was a kind of architecture for people to make politics 
a more ethical space for action, right? A more regulated space for action. Of course, the irony being that the involvement in precisely all of this kind of proceduralistic language oftentimes was read by other students and by adults and faculty administrators and others as being really political, right? Either because they were involved in some sort of legislative process or because they looked so kind of nitpicky and so kind of expert that how could they possibly be the vanguard, you know, revolutionary student groups that, that, that we, once, we once knew and, and loved. You know, one of the insights, of course, is that, you know, and this is probably obvious to say, procedure is never not substantive, right? Procedure and substance are always co-constituted, right, or integrated in some way. And so it was in part the attempt to proceduralize, it, substance kept leaking back in, right, and looking political. So, uh, so I think that's a really interesting conundrum for these activists, but also for, for, for activists more broadly, for anyone who uses the law as a kind of tool for social change. And a great example of how uh, democracy never lives up to its idealized form or these these kind of institution building um, within democracy that it is contradictory and flawed is a conversation that you um, uh, tell about in which one of a student is just complaining about all kinds of things um, about the university and you finally look at him and say but this is the Bologna process this is exactly what you fought for and now you have it and now you're complaining and of course, that's humorous, but I think it really exemplifies um, this idea that it that it, democracy is a work in progress, and that it's not simply you have a revolution and you have people on the streets and you get democracy or you get this kind of liberal democratic government and suddenly it all works. But we're constantly um, engaged um, in that process. And um, so, looking at the kind of the the situation today for young people and students and student activists, yeah. uh, what do you see as their hopes and expectations and delusionments of this democratic process in Serbia today? You know, it's interesting because I have to say I've tracked more with the folks that I, I wrote about in the book who are no longer youth activists in many ways. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're young, right? There are many of them are, are my age, I think I'm kind of young, not super young. Um, so I, you can tell us about them. Yeah, I have a better sense in some ways of of, how, of what it looks like to grow up uh, with this kind of politics than I than I do mm -hmm. of how it's informed contemporary twenty two year olds, twenty three year olds, or on the ground. So I I don't know that I could speak right now to what university politics looks like in Serbia right now as competently as I could speak to what kinds of lessons these folks have taken, right, and the kinds of politics that they've configured. Now, there is great, just, you know, future plug for those interested, there's tremendous amount of good research coming out of the region now about younger, um, younger activists and a whole range of, I mean, it's a really exciting time to be thinking about alternative politics across the former Yugoslavia. There's the, the democratic plenums in Bosnia, which people are researching, writing about both in the region and outside. There's the massive protests in Serbia, massive protests uh, in, in Croatia, all kinds of um, uh, anti-corporate globalization kinds of, kinds of movements. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very robust space for thinking through alternative politics. But other, other folks, I think, will 
um, can talk about that more than I can. From my perspective, one of the most interesting things, and I hinted at this at the beginning of the conversation, is, you know, this, this, if it was a politics of, of disappointment, as it is a politics of competence now, right? That in some sense, I think increasingly, even more than that turning moment in 2003, my sense is people are looking around and saying, this isn't going to get done if we don't do it, right? Which is, again, the same kind of early impulse that I talked about when I, when I, when I, you know, we spoke earlier when talking about the students then too, in terms of the pragmatism. And so just as a very brief example, uh, you know, I've been, been following from a distance, the activism around two things. One is the advocacy and activism around the, the wave of refugees that have come through, you know, because Belgrade and Serbia is right, was on the, the Balkan route. And, uh, and so, you know, there was a massive influx of folks through. And now even with the a formal closing of the route, there are still people coming through. The bulk, as far as I can tell, the bulk of the organizing and advocacy is happening through an NGO world or that or volunteer world that is deeply informed by the experience of this generation of folks down to either individual people who are involved then and are involved now um, on through the kinds of lessons of self-organizing that I think came out of, of this period of activism as well. Uh, and, and I call it a competence, a kind of politics of competence, because people are continuing to make demands on the state and on politicians and, and through formal institutional challenges. But, you know, is, at least in the case of, of the refugees, they're also at a volunteer level taking up that work and getting it done because I just don't think there's a tremendous amount of faith in institutions to really to really do it, you know. And I think that that legacy of self-organizing for better or for worse, right, because there are real implications about state-citizen relations and social welfare and those sorts of things. But I think that work of self-organizing is something that, frankly, people are really, really good at because they've been doing it for a really, really long time. Um, so that's one piece. The other thing that's happening, as I indicated, you know, there have been huge protests in uh, in Belgrade lately, I won't I won't go into to it in a lot of detail, but basically there's been a, a move to privatize and develop part of the waterfront, and there have been a variety of it's sort of a public part private partnership with international foreign capital, um, but there's been a lot of concern about the transparency and sort of rule of law. Uh, aspects of, of this development and of course it, it privatizes a, 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 a area of, of the city which has has a tremendous number of public uses it's also been a working class area this sort of this sort of thing it's a story we know from lots of Gezi Park right I mean there's lots of stories like this in urban privatization but there have been huge huge numbers and like massive numbers of protests but not just protests solid many years of, of solid analysis, research, and coalition building has gone into producing the kind of public pushback and public protest that we're seeing on the streets, right, for example, of, of Belgrade now. And I think the lessons of long-term planning and coalition building 
and using regulations and using statutes and using expert analysis and networking with international groups. Again, this isn't specific to Serbia, right? This is this is good social movement stuff. But I do think that those lessons very much came out of the experience of of the 90s and the post the post 2000 world. So, in some ways, to answer your question. People are feeling more frustrated. They're feeling more bleak. Economically, the situation is continues to be extremely difficult, especially in the, the post-Great Recession. Um, the refugee situation has been made things extremely complicated. Accession to the EU is, you know, gets it gets sort of there's a step and then it gets pushed back. I mean, there's a whole range of things. Unemployment continues to be very high. I think there's a, a lot of frustration. Um, at the same time, there's a lot of really good organizing going on. And so I think it's important to, to flag the how long it takes. When we talk about a politics of disappointment, I think it's important to flag the, 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 the layering of knowledge and experience and connections right, that produce. We see on the news huge protests, right? What we often don't see is, is many, many, many years of that kind of groundwork and learning and, and coalition building. And so, you know, if people are interested, that's that sort of where I would look to, um, to think about tensions between democratic politics and, and increasing in some ways um, state authoritarianism uh, in, in Serbia right now. And that leads in actually to our my final question, um, and I appreciate the time that you've spent talking about this book with us, but we're interested in knowing what you're working on now. Okay, so I am taking a little bit of a, of a detour to work through and then come back to, to some of the themes that I've been talking about. You know, having worked in, in Serbia and in across former Yugoslavia and Eastern Europe for so long, and working in some sense in, in in the margins of Europe looking in, and I have that in kind of air quotes, I began to be interested in, uh, became interested increasingly in how it is some of these central contradictions around democracy, representation, particularly security and rights, were playing out in the so-called center, right? And mm. so what I'm now interested in, and particularly through the kind of language or idiom that I talked about of law and proceduralism, right? So what kind of, what kind of, of creative world-making possibilities are happening in spaces that people often see as, as highly scripted, right? So legal spaces. So with that, I'm uh, working now on a project on the European Court of Human Rights and looking at at human rights uh, adjudication in the European context and trying to think a little bit again about these similar kinds kinds of tension. What is the, the relationship between law and democracy, for example? What is the relationship between some uh, security and rights? And how is it that people are negotiating seemingly impossible contradictory demands, right, in the pursuit of democracy in contemporary Europe and using particularly these legal tools in order to do it. So I am currently on fellowship um, with the, the very kind support of my home institution, University of Illinois, to do a year of, of in the law school. And so I'm a, I'm a law student right now. <laughs> wow. Very, very interesting. And uh, um, I'm sure quite an experience to be a student again yourself, uh, as well as learning about a um, uh, a more the more technical aspects of, of yeah 
Well, great. Well, um, we look forward to seeing what comes out of this uh, learning experience and research experience for you. And um, hopefully we'll be interviewing you again for the New Books Network in the future. Um, But in the meantime, thank you again for taking the time to talk to us about um, the politics of disappointment in Serbia and youth activism. And I'm sure our listeners um, enjoyed your comments as much as I did and, and getting to know more about the book. And for our listeners, we hope that you'll join us again next month for another installment of the New Books in East European Studies podcast series. And uh, we wish you all the best.